some stories were never supposed to be told. Stories that exist in the twilight between science and the supernatural, between history and horror. Stories that speak of terrifying things. Stories that you want to hear. Stories that you need to hear. Stories that will sink their teeth in and never let you go. My name is Mike Brown, and this is Pleasing Terrors. Episode 6, The Mountain of Madness. Though increasingly rare, there are still mysteries in this world. Things that we can't explain. They haunt us, challenge us, and despite our every effort, continue to defy us. We like answers. And in that sense, this story will be frustrating because it has no answers to give. It will only leave you with questions, and behind those questions lurks something unknowable and terrifying, waiting for us to venture too close. On January 28th, 1959, under the leadership of college student Igor Dyatlov, a group of mostly young people gathered their equipment and prepared to leave an abandoned geologist camp in the Siberian Sverdlovsk Oblast province, in the northern Ural Mountains of the Soviet Union, to continue on the next leg of their journey. They were what was referred to in the Soviet Union at that time as ski tourists. Ski tourism was a rugged outdoor activity that involved long treks over difficult terrain, deep into the snowy Siberian wilderness. It required a significant degree of survival skills and tested the tourists' ability to endure the harsh climate and navigate their way across the landscape. There were 10 of them, eight men and two women. They were students at the Ural Polytechnic Institute in Sverdlovsk. They were studying to be engineers and economists and they were members of the UPI Sports Club, an organization which regulated athletic activities like ski tourism. They were class two hikers, which meant that they were all experienced and the veterans of many previous expeditions. This trip was intended to provide them with their class three certification, which was the highest level of proficiency recognized by their school. They had left amidst much fanfare on the part of their fellow classmates, taking a train from Sverdlovsk to Ivdel, a city at the center of the province. From there, they took a bus to the town of Vyshe, which as far as the Russians were concerned, was the edge of civilization. The Siberian region in which they traveled was a dark and mysterious place. Outside the few cities, there was vast wilderness occasionally interrupted by small settlements, many of them abandoned, as well as prison camps and secret military bases. From Vichet, they rode in the back of a truck to a geologist camp, which had agreed to make a room available to them for the night. They arranged for a horse to pull their supplies and a guide to lead them as they skied to their next stop, an abandoned camp 15 miles away. Now, as they prepared for the next leg of their journey, they realized that one member of their group would be leaving them. Yuri Yudin, who suffered from chronic pain in his back and legs, had realized that he would not be able to continue any further. 
and planned to head back after seeing the group off. Despite his physical challenges, Yuri had been a dedicated and enthusiastic member of the group, and they were sorry to be leaving him behind. Yudmila Dubinina, one of the female hikers, was especially sad to see him go. She can be seen in photos taken by the group, hugging him and touching his cheek affectionately. As Yuri watched them ski off into the Siberian wilderness, he would be the last person to see them alive. Three nights later, another group of hikers reported seeing strange spherical lights in the night sky in the area where the Dyatlov group was supposed to be traveling. At the time, it seemed merely to be a curiosity, and nothing more was made of it. The group was supposed to send a telegraph to the university sports club upon their return to Vichy on February 12th. But February 12th came and went, and the hikers did not return. As days turned into weeks, their families began to grow concerned. They contacted the university and asked that someone be sent to look for their loved ones. The university refused, but continuing pressure convinced them to send a telegram to Vichy asking for any information about the missing students. When the authorities in Vichy informed them that the group had still not returned, university officials relented and began organizing a volunteer search party composed of faculty and students. On the morning of February 17th, strange spherical lights were again seen in the sky. These sightings were later reported by hikers, hunters, and members of the Soviet military. By February 20th, the search party had been organized, and two students were sent north in a helicopter to begin the search, but they were forced to turn back due to bad weather. The next day, they flew to a Mansi village to question members of the local tribe. The Mansi were native to the area. They told the students that a group of young hikers had visited their village a few weeks before and had joined them for tea, but they had not seen them since. By February 23rd, search parties had begun to arrive in the area and were soon joined by family members, government officials, and local workers. Two survey planes flew overhead coordinating the groups of volunteers. The first discovery was made the next day when a helicopter pilot spotted ski tracks in the snow. He then directed one of the search parties towards the tracks. Two days later, they found the hiker's tent on the slope of a mountain the Mansi called Kolat Sayakl, a mountain just off the intended route of the Dyatlov group. The discovery of the tent would provide rescuers with the first indications that something had gone very wrong, something unusual and they began to realize that this was no ordinary misadventure. The tent was partially buried under snow, and when the searchers cleared it away, they could see that someone or something had torn the sides of the tent to shreds. More importantly, there was no one inside. The hikers were gone. Disturbingly, all of their belongings were still there, even their shoes. It was as if they had just vanished, leaving all of their possessions behind. The search party returned to their camp and sent out a radio message, letting the other groups know what they had found. 
And soon, all of the rescuers began to converge on the slope of Kolat Sayakal. It was the next day before they found the footprints. Nine sets of footprints, most of them without shoes, heading down the slope toward the wooded valley below. They followed them until they vanished, and then kept going in the same direction, heading for the trees in the distance. At the edge of the tree line, a mile down the slope from the tent, they found the remains of a campfire next to a large cedar tree. Next to it lay the bodies of two members of the Dyatlov group, Yuri Durashenko and Yuri Krivonashenko. Yuri Durashenko had been in a serious relationship with Zineda Komogorova, one of the female hikers. But even though the relationship had ended, they had remained friends. He was 21 years old. George Krivonashenko was a graduate of UPI with a degree in nuclear engineering. He loved the outdoors and had written to friends about how much he was looking forward to the trip. He was 24 years old. Now they lay frozen on the ground, their hands burnt and charred as if they had held them too close to the fire while trying to stay warm. They were wearing only their underwear. The branches of the cedar tree had been cut up to a height of about 16 feet, no doubt to provide fuel for the fire. But the searchers wondered if perhaps someone had climbed up into the tree to gain a vantage point from which they might be able to look back towards the tent. A few hours later, they found the body of Igor Dyatlov in the snow further up the slope. Dyatlov, a radio engineering student who was a veteran of three previous hikes to the northern Ural Mountains, he was known to be extremely competent and professional and was considered to be an expert skier and wilderness survivalist. He was in love with Zineda Komolgorova, and a photograph of her was found in his pocket. He was 23 years old. He appeared to have frozen to death while trying to get back to the tent. 300 yards beyond Dyatlov lay the body of Zineda Komolgorova. She was also studying radio engineering. She described herself as a country girl and was in love with Igor Dyatlov. On a previous trip, she was bitten by a poisonous snake, but insisted on carrying her own pack as she walked back to get medical attention. She was 22 years old. She too appeared to have frozen to death while trying to reach the tent. The four bodies were taken to a staging area from which they would be sent back to Ivdel for examination. On March 2nd, further back along the route traveled by the hikers, the searchers found a storage structure where the hikers had set aside some of their supplies, both to lighten their loads for the increasingly challenging climb ahead and in anticipation of their return trip to Vichy. Three days later, the body of Rustam Slobodin was found in the same area where they had earlier discovered Dyatlov and Komogorova. He was an avid hiker and was well-liked by the other members of the group. He played the mandolin. He was 23 years old. Like Dyatlov and Komogorova, he appeared to have frozen to death in an effort to return to the tent. Examination of the tent revealed that it had been cut open with a knife from the inside. The type of tent used by the hikers buttoned shut and was difficult to open. The fact that they had cut their way out with a knife suggested that they had wanted to leave the tent in a hurry, that they were in a panic. Efforts to find those hikers that were still missing continued in the weeks ahead. But even though the search went on for weeks, through good weather and bad, 
they were nowhere to be found. As the rescue parties continued their search, they were not alone on Kolat Sayakal. On the night of March 31st, a search party member reported seeing spherical lights in the sky. It wasn't until just over a month later on May 4th that the remaining hikers were discovered at the bottom of a snow-covered ravine. Alexander Kolevitov was studying physics. The two girls in the group thought that he was a bore. He liked to compose humorous verse and also played the mandolin, though in his case, badly. He was 25 years old. Semyon Zolotarev was a late addition to the group. He had joined at the last minute when his plans to go hiking with another group had fallen through. He had fought in the Red Army during World War II. More recently, he had worked as a wilderness guide and a ski instructor. His tattoos suggested that he may have had a criminal background. He liked drinking and womanizing. He was 37 years old. Nikolai Thibault Brignot was the son of a French communist who had run afoul of the Soviet government. He had grown up in a prison camp. He liked to play practical jokes. He was 24 years old. Yudmila Dubinina was studying engineering and economics. Two years earlier, on another ski trip, she had been accidentally shot by another member of the group who was cleaning his rifle. She made jokes as they carried her out of the wilderness to seek help. She liked singing and photography. She was 21 years old. The ravine was littered with cut branches and scraps of clothing. It appeared that they had attempted to make some kind of ragtag shelter. During the examination of their bodies, it was confirmed that the first five hikers to be found had all died of hypothermia, as had one of those found in the ravine but the other three hikers in the ravine had died from violent internal injuries. Thibault Brignol had multiple skull fractures. Zolotarev had an open wound in his side, as well as five broken ribs. Disturbingly, his eyes were missing. The most horrific injuries were those sustained by Yudmila Dubinina, who had eight broken ribs and whose nose had been broken and flattened. Her eyes were missing, as was her tongue. The quantity of blood in her stomach suggested that she had been alive when her tongue had been removed. With the exception of Zolotarev's open wound, there were no signs of external trauma to explain the internal injuries. The doctors determined that no human could have caused those injuries. Instead of bringing answers and some sense of closure, each revelation only deepened the mystery. While they were young, these were experienced hikers, some of them had previously visited the area. They had proven themselves in the face of hardship and danger in the past. They were smart, capable, and skilled. And yet something had caused them to forsake everything they knew and to run off unprepared into the sub-zero temperatures of that Siberian night. Using their journals and photographs, the investigators tried to piece together what had happened to the hikers from the moment they had left Yuri Yudin at the abandoned geological camp. On January 28th, they had skied north along the Lovza River. After reaching its tributary, the Ospia River, they set up camp. The next day, they followed a sleigh and deer trail along the Ospia. 
they saw Mansi symbols carved under the trees and soon reached an old Mansi camp. Beyond the camp, the trail ended. Ahead lay virgin snow, four feet deep. It is doubtful that they were aware of the Mansi legends of the area, particularly those concerning the mountain Kolatsayakal. The Mansi told outsiders that the name meant Dead Mountain, that it referred to the fact that nothing grew there. But other Mansi stories suggested that the name was more appropriately translated Mountain of the Dead, and that it took its name from nine Mansi tribesmen who had gone up that mountain and never returned. In late January of 1959, nine more people were traveling into the area of the mountain. It was like the mountain itself was the mystery, as if it were drawing them in to a point beyond which there would be no escape. The group pushed on to the pass that would take them past Kolatsayakal, but the weather worsened and they became blinded by the snow and disoriented. They drifted off their intended route and up the slope of the mountain. When they realized their mistake, they decided against seeking shelter in the woods a mile below and instead decided to camp on the slope. They pitched their tent just before sunset and ate dinner. Two or three hours later, something happened. In a panic, they cut themselves free of the tent and wearing only the clothes that they were sleeping in, fled into the sub-zero temperatures and down the slope towards the woods. At some point, three members of the group sustained devastating injuries. After they reached the trees, they stopped. They did not seek to immediately return to the tent, but waited in the woods, building a fire in an effort to keep warm. Why had they fled? Why did they wait so long to return to the tent? Desperate, three of them finally tried to make it back, but by then, it was too late. In the absence of any answers, those who studied their actions began to speculate. That speculation continues to this day. The most mundane suggestion was that they feared an avalanche, but there were no signs of an avalanche. The most absurd scenario put forward was that they were attacked by a yeti, a Russian Sasquatch. But again, there was no evidence that this was the case. It was thought they might have been accidentally killed by some sort of secret weapons test. But again, nothing was found at the site to support this theory. There was no debris, no other footprints, and no sign that there was any living creature on the mountain with them that night. But there was something. Another mystery lingering in the background. The strange spherical lights seen by another group of hikers 30 miles to the south of the Dyatlov group. The lights that were seen again on the night of February 17th and on the night of March 17th and once more on the night of March 31st. When the contents of the hikers' tent were examined, one of the items found was Igor Dyatlov's camera, and the film was developed. The last photograph taken with the camera was a blurry image of what seemed to be a bright sphere of light set against the night sky. This part of Siberia is an ancient land. It is home to many secrets, many mysteries. A Franciscan friar who visited the court of the Mongols in 1246 heard a story about an attempted Mongol invasion of this part of Siberia. As the Mongol army approached the mountain, they were stopped by a cloud-like formation, 
according to the legend, when some of the soldiers tried to penetrate it. It took their eyes. Another of their legends is that of the Golden Woman, Zaltaya Baba. Before their forced conversion to Christianity, the ancestors of the Mansi people had worshipped the Golden Woman, a statue of a sitting woman said to be made of pure gold. When they were forced to abandon their faith, the statue was hidden in a cave somewhere in the region. No one was allowed to see her. No one was allowed to enter her cave. The statue was brought to the area by local warriors who had participated in the sacking of Rome in 410 AD. One of the few descriptions of the statue indicated that it did not look Roman at all and may in fact have been Indian or even Sumerian in origin. Another name attributed to the Golden Woman was Churos Nyanki, Ocean Fire Mother, who was called the Mother of Celestial Fire. In other words, a goddess of the fire in the sky. Some descriptions of the statue stated that it was not golden at all, but was instead luminous, that it was a source of light. While we do not know what happened to them, there is a word that describes the mystery which envelops what we now call the Dyatlov Pass incident. That word is Lovecraftian. It is a term used to describe the fiction created or inspired by weird fiction writer Howard Phillips Lovecraft whose poems, short stories, and novellas often featured academics and explorers journeying into forbidden and forgotten places and encountering strange creatures barely comprehensible to the human mind. Interaction with these creatures would sometimes reduce the protagonist to a state of madness. It is a term that was only intended to describe works of fiction. It was never meant to be applied to something in the real world. And yet, replace the Dyatlov hikers with a group of American college students and relocate their trek to the backwoods of New England, and it is as if their fate were dictated by Lovecraft's pen. On the subject of what caused the hikers to slash their way out of their tent and abandon every bit of instinct and training that they possessed, Lovecraft may be able to offer some insight. He once wrote, the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the oldest and strongest fear is the fear of the unknown. Paradoxically, the more one learns of the Dyatlov Pass incident, the more the mystery deepens. Answers seem to get further out of reach. But if there is a lesson to be learned from the fate of the Dyatlov hikers, it is this. There are still mysteries in this world, they draw us in like animals to a baited trap. And if we venture too close, the jaws may spring shut. Because some of those mysteries are dangerous. This episode of the Pleasing Terrors podcast was written by Mike Brown. It was recorded by Mike Shear at Charleston Sound Studios. It was produced by Podcast Motor. If you enjoyed this episode, please support this podcast by rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever platform you prefer. Ratings and reviews will make it easier for listeners to find us. And remember to hit the subscribe button. For more creepy news, history, and folklore, please visit us at Pleasing Terrors on Facebook and Twitter, and at pleasingterrors.com. Thank you for listening. 
I'll speak with you again in two weeks.